If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 marks a really a dividing point in the book of Romans where it moves from what uh, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, had been uh, really focused upon for the first 12 chapters and helping the, the church in Rome as he's writing from Corinth uh, many, many years ago, helping them to uh, see the salvation that God provides in Jesus not through the lens of what they had typically been looking at it through, that is through their own uh, genealogy, their own background as far as their physical lineage, uh, but moving towards finally the idea that both Gentiles and Jews, regardless of their background, truly were one in Christ. And in Romans chapter 12, moving forward, he begins to really lay out what does it mean to be one in Christ? What does it mean to be members one of another? And that was so hard for those individuals who had been separated, had been kind of in sex for so long. They had incredible difficulty, as you'll read through the book of Romans, executing the basics of some of the most uh, simple things. Let's uh, pick up in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump into verse 3 through 8 this morning. He says this. I'll be reading out the ESV translation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this very idea that in worshiping God, we're going to transform how we think. It's not just simply music. That's a part of it at some point. But truly, as we know God and seek to be his disciples, we're going to think differently. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly difficult because I've spent all my life thinking the way I want to think. But we're to take God's word and we are to change our thinking. And in doing so, we'll be able to discern what God's will is for our life. Do it not, and you're going to have problems there. And so with that as the background, he says this in verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not most or some, but to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. So the very foundation that he's going to bring into this idea of members of one another begins with your thinking. I don't know about you, but I've been a part of a lot of churches in my life since age 13. And I have certain thoughts about all of those churches, some good, some not so good. I've had some good experiences in church, but I've also had some bad experiences in church. Anyone here have bad experiences in church? If you've had bad experiences in this church, keep your hand down. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> See Wade, he's my complaint uh, officer there. Uh, no, it, it's the truth is you've had bad experiences, right? Maybe you didn't feel welcomed when you walked in the door. Maybe someone snubbed you. you they, they knew that you were new and or you thought they knew that you were new, and, and they didn't even bother to say hello. And you said, well, I'm, that's typical of all churches, and you kind of walk out, and you, you don't show up again. 
or maybe you've, you've been a part where you've dug into churches and, and, and you served incredibly in every single way, and after a while you got bitter because you saw no one else serving as much as you did and go, well, if they're not in it up to, uh, as much as I am, if they're not that committed, well, neither am I. And then you kind of quit going to church for a while, maybe forever. It happens all the time, but it all begins with how you think and how you view yourself and others. And most of the time in those examples that I've just showed you or, or kind of thrown out there, we rarely think in regards to Scripture and God's commands. We tend to compare ourselves to others and what we like and don't like, and we act upon it. And so Paul says this, inspired by God, for by the grace given to me, remember the apostle Paul stood there and approved of the murder of Stephen. He, he had persecuted the church, thrown believers in prison. He had this horrible background. And he, he continues in his writings and his letters to the churches, recalling this incredible grace that God had shown him. No matter your background in here today, God's grace is enough. And he says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. It really is easy to do that. And you might think, well, it, it, it could be easy to think more highly if you're a teacher or a worship leader, but I'm just the person behind the scenes. Believe it or not, I've talked to those people. I've been one of those people. And we really begin to get arrogant sometimes. If your gift is mercy and you're part of a large church and you're constantly calling people, writing letters, giving food, and no one else seems to be doing that, you can really become arrogant and think, wow, I'm the only one that really loves people. I'm, I just need to find a new church full of loving people because I'm clearly the only one that's loving here. And it's amazing how we can twist things to our own mindset. And he, he lays it out. He says, don't think more highly of yourself. Rarely do you find someone that thinks more lowly of, of themselves. Like, you know what? I'm probably the, the least worthy in this church. I'm just lucky they let me in the door. <laughs> Rarely do you find that. Really, most of the time you're like, eh, they probably shouldn't even be here. I know what they do on Saturday nights. I know what they do in their business. I'm probably the most righteous person here, but I guess I'll, I'll tolerate the rest of you. That's, that's our attitude a lot of times sometimes. And it's, and it's hard to get past that. You would think that in Paul's day, that really wouldn't be a problem. I mean, you have the apostle Paul writing you a letter. This is, several of the apostles are still alive. John is still alive, more than likely James at this point. But notice what was going on with Jesus and his, um, his life with the disciples in this uh, particular passage. Hopefully we can pull it up. This is Matthew chapter 24. He says this. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In Mark chapter 9, verse 34, he says this, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another. Imagine now, arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, 
He must be last of all and servant of all. The idea is this. Even when Jesus was on earth in his physical body and he called disciples together, they were still arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And you might not think, well, that doesn't seem that really important. Of all the things in this world, Scott, that you could be preaching on, of all the things God could have inspired Paul to write about, really is this idea of how we think about one another really that important? I got to tell you, it is. You ever been to, say, an event where you had family in town? Maybe Christmas? You've been around family that they're literally blood related to you and maybe a few in-laws and outlaws hanging out. Is that a challenging time? Oh, yeah. Uh, it is incredibly challenging, even if it's just you and like your spouse. Judy and I went to Washington uh, over Christmas to, to visit some friends. And on the way up, we decided to use Google Maps in their directions. Well, I have Google Maps on my phone. It works pretty well. Judy's phone that she was using to navigate, that one doesn't work so well. We were literally driving around in circles for blocks when all we had to do was do a U-turn. And every time Judy would tell me the directions and I would hear the phone say, there was this kind of pregnant pause like, do we believe it? And is Scott just going to lose his mind and just flip out on Christmas, this pastor who's trying to get to friends and celebrate the holidays? No, I, I did not perform well in that sort of one another setting. I was uh, blaming the computer, but somehow Judy got thrown under the bus in the midst of that. <laughs> and, and poor Judy had to tolerate me, and she, like I was sick, so she really couldn't get too upset with me. I, I was kind of blaming that. But the idea of working together, loving one another, being a part of one another, and not thinking more highly is tough. It is real. It is challenging. Verse 4, he says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Many of you know that I had jaw surgery just a, a week or two ago, and it was doing good until Friday. Friday, I was circling the drain. My jaw got infected in a super amount of pain, and so I, I'm starting off, I'm sitting there on the couch, just zoned out, serious amount of pain. Judy asked me what's going on, and I try to pretend like I'm not about to die. And so I don't say much, but I get on the phone to the surgeon, and I call, and I go, I, I, I need to up my, my appointment to see you, my, my follow-up appointment. And the nurse, you know, she goes, okay, all right, we'll, we'll put you in for next week. And I go, oh, great. And I'm thinking, okay, I can make it till next week couple hours go by, my mouth begins to swell, and I, I look like a chipmunk. I'm talking to that dude. And so I get back on the phone, and I get a hold of the nurse, and I go, this isn't working. I, I need some help. And she goes, well, the doctor's in surgery, and I didn't let her off the hook. I just let that pregnant pause there, like get him out of surgery. And she did. She went and talked to him in surgery. I don't know what poor soul he was cutting on, but this nurse comes in, and 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 gets a hold of him, and she comes back and goes, well, he's calling in some antibiotics. I'm like, yes, I've got a window of opportunity that I'm not going to die. So I go immediately and get the antibiotics, and I come home. But I wasn't really satisfied because, quite honestly, as hard as it was to even eat and think with all the pain and swelling, 
I was able to process the fact that he gave me an antibiotic that is like giving to children, like one of those real low-dose antibiotics. I sold pharmaceuticals for about a decade, and I never sold antibiotics, but I knew enough that I was like, that's not going to save my life. I need the IV, Leviquin, Cipro, something. (laughs) I I need to be in the ER. And so I thought it was kind of good, but I I wasn't really happy with the whole scenario. But I took it anyway, and I'm doing better today. But several of you, call, I called several of you, asked you to pray for me, and you honestly did. You didn't pray that I die. You prayed that I got better. And, and, and things are looking up. But this illustration that the apostle Paul is using here, it's very real. When one part of the body is not functioning, uh, it's tough. You, you think, well, I could just get by with you know, a toothache or an infection. But no, it affects everything. And if you've ever been in a church where there's like one or two people that are really sour and bitter or have their own agenda and and they think more highly of their teaching and their Bible study than anyone else in the church, including the pastor, and they're just, they're ruling the roost in their own little domain. If you've been a part of that church, you tend to to not want to be a part of churches in the future because you've seen that. But at the same time, every single person is important. So how do you deal with it? In verse 5, he says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So the very first thing that you have to understand is we are members of one another. We're not our own little rulers in our own little circle of influence. Everyone in here is interconnected if you've chosen to be a member of a church. You can, do you realize you can come to this church and not be a member? I mean, it's like going to Safeway. You could just walk into Safeway and walk out. This is a public building. You feel free to come in here and listen and, and participate. But at some point, you have to decide, am I a part of this body or not? And you actually have to communicate that to people because it's really awkward when you don't. It would be kind of like having a football game and a football team and you're the coach and some person just shows up to practice every once in a while. They're all dressed. They look good. And and you're like, who is that person? You go over there and you meet them and they're all nice and friendly and they're kind of hanging out and you think, all right, they're volunteering to be on the team. And you go out and practice and you're working really hard, not the fun stuff. And they decide to kind of go and sit in the stands and watch and you're like, well, Maybe, maybe this isn't the place for them. But they continue coming every single practice, and they kind of drift back and forth, and you realize they only want to do certain things. Like, this person wants to be the quarterback, and if they can't be the quarterback, they're sitting in the stands. And then finally, you get to the game, and by all means, they show up, and, and they're there. They're, they're celebrating. They're ready. They're, they're just excited to get the game going. But as the game goes on, you realize they're back up in the stands. And then finally, as the, the, the offense gets all the way down and is prepared to make a touchdown, they run up to the coach and said, put me in, coach. I want to be the quarterback. I want to win this game for you. And he's like, eh, I don't think so. There is a level of commitment. There's a level of working together in being one another. It's not just kind of participating when you want, attending when you want. It's living life together. And I got to tell you, it's a lot of fun. Uh, even though you might think, well, this is, this is tough stuff. Uh, when you gather together with people and you live life together, you learn what it means to be a part of a team, a part of a group that really loves one another. 
These folks are just sitting uh, on a blanket having a picnic with uh, a cousin of Patches of the Wonder Dog. And uh, if you've ever been a part of a group like this where you have some friends where you can just hang out, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to eat. You don't have to play games. You're just hanging out at someone's house. You realize how awesome that is. You don't have to have the house perfectly clean. You're just hanging out. That's what the church ought to be. And it really can't be that way on Sunday mornings. That's why we say we're glad you're here. We're glad you're visiting. We want to be a blessing to you. But you can't just hang out with 100 people and know everyone. It takes those smaller intimate groups where they know bad stuff about you. They know your challenges and your sins and your difficulties and where they're coming alongside and encouraging. And as we're about to see here, that's where you really use the spiritual gifts that God has given you. But he says, though we are many, we are one in body in Christ, individually members one of, an, one of another. John, the Apostle Paul, or rather Jesus says in the book of John, uh, verse 13, or 34 through 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love or if you have love for one another. And it didn't come up. There you go. Now you can read it. Do you really love one another? I bet you love your spouse, hopefully. For those of you who don't, I've got marriage counseling for you. Most of you love your kids most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. But do you love the person like sitting two rows behind you? Do you love the person sitting on the other side of the church? Do you even know their name? Well, once again, I, I got to tell you, it's hard to even know this many people, much less love them. That's one, why we, again, focus people in the Blue Mountain app groups, where Blue Mountain as a church meets. At the same time, you have to be committed to one another. And here at Blue Mountain Baptist Church, and I've discovered this is one of the things that people use not to be a member of a church. They go, well, I don't want to sign a document. I don't want to do this or that. And they're kind of beating up a, a, a it's called a straw man. It's, it's not a real argument. The question is, have you ever asked what, what Blue Mountain Baptist Church requires to be a member? I hope you have, but it's real simple. I'll tell you. All you do is you sit down with me or someone like me who's been through a membership, and we just explain. You don't do anything. You just sit there, have coffee, donuts, whatever you like. We just simply explain what the church believes according to the Bible. We walk you through that. Some of, for some people, it's kind of new. Some people, it's like, yeah, uh, that's simple. And then we walk you through how we operate. In other words, based upon what we believe, this is how we operate together as a church. And then finally, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you ever made a decision to trust in Jesus? And I will share my personal testimony with you of when I did that, and we would ask that you do the same. And if not, we give you an opportunity to really maybe make that decision once and for all. And that's it. We don't ask you to sign a document. We don't ask you to sign, do any of that stuff. It's just coming together and really understanding what this body believes and how we operate. That's all it is. Well, he continues on and he says this. He begins to jump in to spiritual gifts. Verse 6, he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So if you're new to kind of church background or, or new to the Bible, the Bible says this, God gave the church miraculous and some people call them sign gifts as well as other gifts. They're called spiritual gifts. Let's just take a quick survey in here. Have you ever been to a church where they've handed you out a document and it had like 100 questions on it and it was a spiritual gifts inventory test? Have you ever done one of those? Yeah, about half of you. I have to tell you those are entirely unbiblical. I'm sorry. Uh, they were well motivated. They, they are. They're well motivated by some pastor who thought, you know what? I'm going to try to get some workers out of this group. We're going to make sure they know exactly what their spiritual gift is and we're going to have a... Hey, they're not leaving the, the back of the room without signing up for something, right? That was their way of trying to really ratchet it down. Well, truthfully, there are a number of places in the Bible that it describes spiritual gifts in the New Testament, but they're not the same list. They're kind of open-ended, and they really don't go that far into the descriptors of what these gifts are. Not only that, but it, it by no means says, if you have this gift, okay, you use that gift only. No, it's, for instance, one of the gifts is generosity. You may have a generous uh, heart that God has gifted you with, but it doesn't mean that everyone else doesn't have to give. Or you may be very merciful, but that doesn't excuse Scott from basically being not merciful at all. Uh, so it's, it's not like that. So it's, it's a, a very challenging area to study because we wish or some of us might wish that, that God had given us more description on these gifts. And we're going to go through them one by one relatively quickly because we're not going to spend a lot of time on the individual gifts, but what we are going to spend time on is the idea is that we ought, if we are members of one body, be using our gifts, whatever they may be. So beginning in verse 6, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. So the very first thing you have to know is these gifts are given to us by God's grace. If one person is a teacher and another person is a servant, neither is better than, not one person is better than the other. The teacher uh, isn't uh, more highly thought of. He isn't uh, somehow in God's grace to a greater degree. Yes, there are more responsibilities and requirements in certain things, but we are all equal before Christ. This idea we are a priesthood of believers. We all have the ability to access God's grace equally, but we are all given different, different gifts, these grace gifts. And he says, let us use them. So the very first question, regardless of what you've ever thought or heard about spiritual gifts, are you using the gifts that you've been given in the church? in this body, or if you're a member of another church in that body. That's a tough one because it's hard to find your place. Believe it or not, I, I realize that. You might think, well, I'm not sure what my gift is. It's not teaching kids. I know that. It's not, it's not singing. Gosh, you don't want to hear me sing, and I'm not a pastor or teacher, so what's really left? Well, there's all sorts of areas that are left. I got to tell you, one of the greatest gifts that anyone has ever blessed me with in their service to me 
is the gift of mercy. You don't know how many notes that I receive, how many phone calls that I get, just from little old ladies or, or people that are real quiet sitting in their seats that you don't realize that are even there, that behind the scenes, they're writing notes of encouragement, of thanks, of just praise to the Lord. And, and they're not only doing it for me, but within these groups that I'm telling you about, these Blue Mountain Act groups, I hear stories of people loving one another and, and being merciful to one another. Like, yes, that is the hands and feet of Christ being applied. It's amazing to watch that. Well, let's begin with prophecy. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, historically, this has been an extraordinarily challenging verse to interpret. The idea is this. Prophecy uh, is a question mark. We'll talk about that in a second. And then in proportion to our faith. Well, prophecy. There, is a number of, uh, there are a number of different views today as far as what prophecy is. You might not be familiar with this, but you may have heard of some of these people. If you've heard of John Piper, if you've heard of Mark Driscoll, of Mark, formerly of Mars Hills Church, if you've heard of Wayne Grudem, these are individuals that are writing books out there and they have a different view of what prophecy is than historically within Christianity. They're called New Calvinists. That's the theology that they teach and preach and live by. And it's kind of a mix mixture of old Calvinism, our Presbyterian kind of Reformed theology, and Pentecostalism. It's the idea that they believe that prophecy and what we call sign gifts, speaking in tongues, the gift of miracles, the gift of uh, apostleship, the gift of healing, these are still in existence according to them. And it's a very common teaching, yet they've kind of twisted it to allow it to be here today. In other words, prophecy in the Old Testament is pretty simple. You read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, thus saith the Lord. And he's speaking on behalf of, of the Lord. It's, this is the word of God. Either you were a true prophet, which was good, or a false prophet. If you spoke anything false, you get stoned to death. It's pretty cut and dry, right? You would think that the false prophets wouldn't be around very long, but they were. Because people like to hear false prophecy, believe it or not. They don't like to hear the truth all the time. Well, in the New Calvinism, as you read books today that are very popular, the idea is prophecy is fulfilled is actually kind of a mixture of truth and error. And I don't hold to that. This church doesn't hold to that. Uh, we view prophecy as very simple. It's the, the revealed word of God. It is the very word of God. It's uh, inspired by God, spoken through a man. And so the idea here, regardless of whether you, you believe in what kind of prophecy exists today, in Paul's day, he's very much speaking of prophets as in Old Testament prophets, but in the New Testament, prophets were prevalent as well. Because at this point in time, you have the Old Testament that had been codified, but you don't have books like we have the Bible today. You have scrolls and all these tablets and various different things, and they're not individually given out to everyone. You have synagogues where you might be able to go access them, but you didn't have direct access to, to God's word very easily. And so you had the Old Testament, and the, the apostles were, were speaking, and the, the church was hearing the word of God in certain letters, and they were beginning to collect them and put them together, which we now form as the New Testament or the Bible that we have today. But in Paul's day, that wasn't readily available. So when you showed up to someone's house to worship together in church, you might have a few scrolls of the Old Testament if you were very wealthy, and there might be a, a copy or two uh, of the Gospels or part of the Gospels, 
But that was about it. And occasionally you would get a letter from an apostle, and those letters were shared within churches. But God was still speaking through prophets. And he's saying, if you are a prophet, use it in proportion to our faith. Now, what does this mean? That is the, the second piece. Well, in Romans chapter 1, when we began this study, in verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's this tension in the New Testament of kind of two aspects of faith. There is a gift of faith, and then we are commanded to believe and have faith. Jesus is constantly uh, admonishing the apostles of, O ye of little faith. There's this idea we're commanded to believe, but at the same time, we are held by God's power, according to Peter, in faith. So it is both a gift and it is both a response to that gift. So there's this amazing thing that, that God gives us faith, but also calls us to faith and to live by faith. So if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if you have very little faith, believe it or not, in Corinthians, it talks about the prophets were subject to their own spirit. It wasn't just the, the spirit of God would come on someone and they would just begin babbling. No, they had the ability to with to kind of hold that and wait orderly and then speak, as well as they had the ability to corrupt that and, and add in other bad stuff if they wanted. The, the prophet had control over their spirit. And so the idea is simply this. Faith governed the prophet. He wasn't to be governed by what he wanted other people to view him as or his, his desire to be seen as higher or more important. Just as you and I are governed by faith, it was especially important that the prophet, the one speaking the very words of God, would be governed by this faith. Well, it continues in verse 7. If service, in our serving. Now, I know several of you are going, you know what? I don't know what my spiritual gift is. It's not serving. I don't like that. <laughs> Certainly not serving in the kids' ministry. No. Here, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew about what serving is. Serving is serving. It is being a servant-hearted person, looking around and not being told what to do, but seeing a need and simply doing it. That is amazing to me. I've seen many people who are wealthy, uh, who are well-educated, and who are well-respected in this community. And yet, when they get here, they're picking up trash, they're sweeping out floors, they're cleaning out bathrooms. According to this world, you would think, wow, they're one of the, the kind of the hierarchy. They're, they're well-to-do, and yet they have this incredible servant heart. Nothing is too small for them to do, and it's such an encouragement to me. If you have no idea how you're gifted, I would start with serving. doesn't mean you, you're going to love it, but you might. And here's another thing I've discovered. Sorry, I'm still not only battling an infection, but also the uh, flu as well. I've been doubly blessed this Christmas. <laughs> the amazing thing is this, that whole one of another thing, if you just are attending and leave and attending and leave, God bless you, I'm glad you're here, but you don't really understand people. You don't really understand the person sitting next to you. 
Try serving together. You're going to see a lot of stuff that you might not like, but it's going to give you an opportunity to exercise that gift of mercy, <laughs> that gift of love, of generosity. It's amazing. When you begin to serve, you see a whole new side of the church. But once again, just as Paul admonishes when you use prophecy to do so according to your faith, here he says, serve in our serving. If service in our serving, the idea is this. It seems repetitive, but it's not. If you're going to serve, don't go into it with, I'm going to serve if. I'm going to serve if everyone else is willing to serve. I'm going to serve if it's convenient for me. Now, if you're going to serve, just serve. Don't complain. Don't whine. Don't have your focus on other people who, who have signed up to serve but didn't show up or who are just lollygagging around or on coffee breaks like I do. No, you just serve. The one who teaches in his teaching. Very simple. Now, once again, there are lots of opportunities to teach. It's just not Sunday mornings here. Truly, one of the greatest ministries I ever had was teaching kids. Downstairs on Thursday nights, on Wednesday nights, Don's not here this morning, but he is in dire need of adults that are willing to pour their lives into teenagers once a week and be a small group leader for them. Just be present, love on them. You have no idea what the family units in, in Baker City look like, but I can tell you in large part it's not good. Rarely will you come across a kid that has both a loving mom and a loving father. Most homes are broken. They've been married and divorced many times. And quite frankly, a godly adult is a rarity in many of their homes. If you want to teach, there's always a place to teach. Verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Here the Greek word for exhort is parakaleo. It's this idea that you come alongside to draw alongside. It's not a speaker yelling at someone. But it's coming up to someone after the whole crowd leaves. It's coming up around someone, putting your arm around them like, what's going on? How are you doing? What's God doing in your life? Can I help you? And as you do that, they no longer give you the, 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 you know, the standard response. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. We're all good. Everyone's good. No problems here. No, they begin to open up. And they, they tell you about their life, and all of a sudden you, you try to not have that shocked look on your face like, you're nuts. You, you need professional help, you know, sort of deal. No, it's amazing how messy we are. And if someone cares enough to come alongside you and truly ask you about that stuff, you got to be ready. You see, we're, we're competent to counsel one another according to Scripture, but you counsel one another according to God's word. And when you come alongside this parakaleo, exhorting one another, you implore, you urge, you care for the other individual. That's what happens in Blue Mountain Act groups. It likely doesn't happen here on Sunday morning unless someone is just incredibly merciful and really has this gift of exhorting. They will spot you out of a crowd and come up to you. But that's kind of hard in, in this larger crowd. But on, on a weekly basis, as, as people get to know you, you can't fake it so much, and they're going to talk to you. That gift of exhorting, 
of Heracleo coming alongside is amazing when it's played out. Because they see all your, your dirty underwear, your, your nastiness in your life, all that stuff laid out. Imagine someone walking into your home right now. You haven't had a chance to clean it. You haven't had a chance to prepare. And you're like, no, you're not coming to the house. Now, these sort of people, you don't care because they have this amazing gift of encouragement, of urging, even when you don't want to hear from them. They kind of like, I don't care. I know you're in a bad mood, but you're still going to hear this. And you're willing to listen to them because they've earned that right because they've been there time and again alongside you. Incredible gift that is often missing in the church today. Well, he says this, the one who contributes in generosity. Very simple. The New Testament doesn't command tithing. Up until Jesus, the, the, the Old Testament law is still in place. After he's resurrected, he fulfills the law. We're no longer under the law. We no longer have to offer sacrifices and tithes and offerings as they did in the Old Testament. The New Testament just explains it to give generously. And so we're to give generously, but there are individuals, some individuals, that just love to give. Have you ever run across those people? I have. They make me feel bad, to be honest with you. They're always giving me stuff. I'm like, I can't keep up with you. I'm poor. I just can't do it. And yet they find a way to give and give and give and give. They're always there with some sort of nice little gift. And you're like, man, I should have thought of that. I'm just not creative enough. I'll give you a gift card. That's about as creative as I get. And it's usually to Amazon, the all-encompassing Amazon. No creativity there whatsoever. And you're like, gee, a lot of thought went into that. Thanks, Scott. Now, if you have the gift of giving, you know it. And what's amazing is, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a series that we're going to do in March, really on this idea of generosity. But if, if you have that gift, give and give and give some more. Because one thing I've discovered is you cannot outgive God, and as you give, the blessing is amazing that you get back. But here's the challenge. This goes all the way back to the first verse that we talked about. You're thinking. Imagine sitting where you're at right now. Imagine not being married. Imagine not having kids. Imagine just being this single person. You have no responsibility other than yourself. In college, if you went to college, think about the days where you had like four roommates and you could survive on like a buck a day Roman noodles. You had the big concrete blocks as far as bookshelves, that sort of thing. You literally had no responsibility on this earth and you could live like a king on minimum wage. It was amazing because you had no bills. Think about life like that. If you think like that, you realize what the kingdom of God is all about because you're no longer concerned with the things of this world. You have the complete freedom to serve Christ wholeheartedly with all that you have. Imagine having no financial responsibilities, no desires for early retirement, no desires for some massive house, no desires at all. You just say, you know what? I have a tiny little bit that I can live on. Then all the rest that God has given me, I can use for his kingdom, whatever that looks like. I can just give and give and give. But few of us are really still in that spot. And here's where we're warned, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, he warns them that they're going to fall away and not to do so. But he doesn't necessarily warn them as much about following other gods as he says this. He says, 
Don't be consumed by the stuff that I'm going to give you. All these vineyards that I'm going to give you that you didn't plant, cisterns that you didn't dig, these cities that you didn't build. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But the challenge was the stuff that we fill our lives with. So if you have the gift of generosity, and it's been a while since you've used it, maybe because you've, you've let the stuff of this world, even the blessings that God's blessed you with, just consume you, I want you to step back and go, all right, how can I give to the kingdom of God? in a way that, that is no longer just, well, I'm going to give as everyone else gives. Then finally, these last two. It says, the one who leads with zeal and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You ever had a leader that's just really bitter and angry? I've been that guy. Because <laughs> amazingly, when uh, you're faced with tension and a difficult project or uh, some sort of hurdle that you have to overcome as an organization, sometimes it's really easy to let that bleed through and how you lead. But if you're going to lead, whether it's on a construction project, whether it's in teaching, whether it's a small group, don't let it be out of obligation or anger or bitterness. Let it be with passion and a love to realize how God can use you to shepherd others and to lead others. It's amazing that God would use us at all, but when God uses those that have this gift of leadership to lead others, we just stand back in awe, going, wow. I was a part of something that had an eternal impact, and it's just so awesome. And then finally, the gift of mercy with cheerfulness. You know, I haven't seen a lot of people with the gift of mercy that had a problem with cheerfulness. It's amazing how those two go together. But occasionally, it is usually someone a little older and, and they're merciful, but they kind of let you know that they're being merciful. They're like, Scott, you know, I love you. And that was an okay sermon today. And I've been here a long time, but I'm getting older, and I just don't think I can handle many more of those sermons. You really need to straighten it up. You know, work a little harder, preach a little bit better, practice if you have to. I'll critique you, send me the notes, whatever. I, I, I'm having mercy on you, but, and then they kind of want to straighten you out. We get that occasionally, right? I love you, but, or I'm, people come to you all the time with, I, I, I thank you so much, you know, it's fun hanging out, but, and then they have this alter, ulterior motive. As a matter of fact, I have to kind of really screen my phone calls. I get the phone call, Scott, uh, can you meet for coffee today? We need to talk. I used to say, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there, what time? Now I'm like, what would you like to talk about? Because <laughs> it's usually, like, if you have something good, you, you don't hold it back, but if it's something bad, they're well, Scott, uh, we need to talk to you about, and I'm like, you know, coffee probably isn't the right scenario. Let's, let's talk in the office. Or let's have a couple other people there sort of deal. Sometimes people appear to be merciful, but they're really not so much. But you're to have mercy with cheerfulness. Be cheerful. If you're going to show mercy, let it be truly mercy. 
and not have ulterior motives. I'll close with this. Members one of another. I want to challenge you this coming month, if you're not a member of this church or any church, and you would like to be a member of this church, we don't, again, require you to sign a document or anything along those lines, but just decide that you want to get plugged in and be a part of this body to serve, to love, to open yourself up a little bit, to truly serve within the kingdom of God in this local body. And if, if not this church, another church that is a Bible-believing church, I encourage you to do that. But sitting on the sidelines forever is not the place to be. There's no real joy in that. Sitting together, hanging out with people, like just like in this picture, as much fun as it seems to be sitting at home alone in your PJs doing nothing all by yourself, that's only fun for so long. You don't know what you're missing by being a part of a body where every gift is being utilized. It's an amazing blessing, and I want to encourage you to, to make that decision this very month. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so very much for your word. I thank you for this body. I thank you for visitors, members, everyone here. We've all, if we're honest with one another, have been in, in various different places in our life where we haven't been quite sure on our, our commitment level and what we want to do, really between ourselves and you, Father. Uh, sometimes we know that we've made a decision to follow you, but we're not all in. Something's happened in our life. And I just pray if anyone is dealing with difficulties, old hurts, old problems, they're able to set that aside and to just jump in to your kingdom and to love one another, to encourage one another, to be known for our love for one another. We just love and praise you. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.